You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 9. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Today, my guest is Juan Carlos Navarro, international expert in higher education, innovation, and digital talent, senior advisor to several international institutions and universities, member of the international faculty of the Instituto de Estudios Superiores de Administración in Caracas, Venezuela. He's with me today to talk about what's happened to higher education in Venezuela under the rule of Hugo Chavez, Nicolas Maduro, and their Bolivarian socialist regime over the past 25 years. The story you're about to hear is a sort of dystopian mix of Russia in the immediate post-Soviet phase and present-day Hungary under Viktor Orban. At the level of individual faculty members, a mix of hyperinflation and government neglect of higher education funding has meant that there has been an extraordinary drop in academic pay, in some cases over 90%. At the level of institutions, there's been furious controversy as the government has tried to reduce institutional autonomy and control them directly through political means. Universities and their students have, as a result, become one of the government's biggest institutional barriers to one-party absolutism. How the system has managed to stagger forward given these twin challenges is one of the most interesting stories in world higher education today. A major part of the government's attack on higher education has occurred through the defunding of traditional institutions in favor of a new mass popular institution known as the Bolivarian University of Venezuela. Those of you who listened to an earlier interview with Alma Maldonado Maldonado of Mexico may remember something similar being done by the government of Andres Manuel López Obrador in that country. Intriguingly, though, the Bolivarian government has allowed a number of private tuition-dependent institutions to remain open, and these might end up being the seeds of an eventual post-Maduro renaissance in Venezuelan higher education. But don't take my word for all this. Juan Carlos is the expert. Have a listen. Juan Carlos, let's go back to the 1980s. Venezuela is, by the definitions of the time, among the most prosperous countries in Latin America and certainly one of the most democratic. Then the price of oil falls sharply and as an OPEC country, the economy starts to contract and there's a slide towards instability. Two coup attempts in 1992, one by a young colonel by the name of Hugo Chavez, and then you know, rising crime, inflation, polarization. What does the higher education system look like before the arrival of Hugo Chavez? You're right in describing this framework that preceded the election of Hugo Chavez in 1998. Having said that, the higher education system was uh, well-developed, was growing, was working just fine. And of course, they had some problems, mostly in the area of resources, because the whole economic downturn of the country and public finances had affected all the sectors, they had been, you know, diminishing resources for health, for social services, for everything, and for education, including higher education. So the public universities were receiving less than they used to. But it was a sort of marginal because they were very powerful, influential politically. So they were able to hold on and keep most of the resources. Higher education was not elitist, it was very open. Public universities were free tuition. Major private universities had extensive scholarships and student aid programs for facilitating access. So, of course, enrollments were skewed to higher income groups, as in every single country in the world. 
but there was a strong effort to integrate and to, to include, you know, the, the social sectors that could not afford on their own uh, attending a university. So on the other hand, enrollments were expanding. Many institutions were being created. There were about 100 institutions, most of them public, about 75% public. A whole sector of non-university tertiary education institutions like technical colleges, polytechnics that were very popular and very good, most of them. So it was sort of a sector in good shape that had been expanding over the previous decade and it produced good quality education, generally speaking, and it was rather inclusive socially. Okay, so then Hugo Chavez takes over in an election in 1998. His first term is very eventful as he tries to move the country to the left. It's marked above all by clashes with the sort of professional and technocratic class. And I'm thinking particularly of the engineer strike at Rolios de Venezuela. What did Hugo Chavez want to do with universities initially? What was his agenda in that first term? And how was that agenda received by faculty and students? Well, it's very hard to say that there was a, an agenda in the first administration, the first Chavez administration. The reason is that there was really a general acceptance, I would say even a welcoming of the Chavez victory in most of the university sector. Of course, this was not unanimous, but if you look at the cabinet, for instance, the first, second, third cabinet of Chavez were mostly recruited in universities. They were university professors, most of them. There was an acceptance and a feeling that the victory of Chavez was something that was positive for the country. So there was not really a major issue. And I don't think that this was a priority for Chavez at the start. It's not like he started the administration and announced a big program for universities, nothing of the sort. When things started to get important for universities, relevant, where was at the point in which by the end of the first term and the initiation of the second term, Chavez starts, uh, we're talking about 2003 and, and on. Chavez has already uh, taken some drastic measures. There are some authoritarian leanings in his way of governing the country. And some democratic resistance starts to be felt, universities start being a part of it. So they not unanimously as a sector, but certain parts of certain universities start to become very active. And I would say the, the most striking moment was the constitutional referendum in 2007. Chavez submitted to the country a reform of the constitution that was very radical. Among other things, they would declare Venezuela socialist republic, and he was defeated. His first big defeat. And the leading act of the opposition to the referendum was university students. So I think that changed a lot, that changed the landscape. And he identified universities as a major point in the opposition, and things started to get complicated. Right. So even before that, though, at the beginning of his second term, Hugo Chavez announces something called the Mission Sucre, which, as I understand it, was sort of a plan for mass adult education. What major part of this plan is the establishment of the Bolivarian University of Venezuela, which is a multi-campus University of the People, I guess. And it took a lot of resources away from existing post-secondary institutions, I think. I don't know how big this system is now. I've seen numbers from anywhere from 100,000 to a million, you know, going to these students. But are these real universities? What are they teaching exactly? What kinds of, of credentials is it giving out? Well, Mission Sucre was one of several missions that he undertook as a response 
to the challenge of the opposition. He wanted to show that he was really delivering the good to the population. And in education, the name, the, they were all called missions. The mayor initiative of Mission Sucre was Universidad Bolivariana. Universidad Bolivariana was created from scratch. It didn't exist before. And it was fairly soon, it acquired proportions, gigantic proportions. We're talking about over 200,000 students. Explicitly, the idea was that the previous university system had excluded many students and that they now had to be given access to higher education. So the university is very comprehensive. It has name discipline or a career, and you can have it there, basically. Engineering, nursing, administration, business, economics, whatever. Then that was done, you already mentioned, that was done to a certain extent at the expense of supporting traditional universities. Venezuela had a good public university system. At least five or six of them were very prominent, scientifically large. We're talking about tens of thousands of students, the best professors in the country, et cetera. And those were going to be suffering out of the, the resources that would be channeled to this new institution. At the same time, it was done so quickly that uh, academic criteria played little role in it. So it has always been a shadow over the quality of the graduates. There is easily hundreds of thousands of graduates of this university and a parallel university that was called the University of the Armed Forces. That is also over 200,000 students. And in this case, it was the product of Chavez transforming a previous technical institute of the armed forces into a full-fledged university. And you add up all those, and you have hundreds of thousands, probably half a million graduates by now. And they, I mean, I'm sure some of them are very competent and have a good education for some reason. And but that's a bit random. So you don't really know. There is no quality assurance. There's no information. There's no way to establish. And there are doubts over whether those are really well-earned diplomas or not. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Juan Carlos, turning back to the older public universities, Venezuela spent a good deal of the last decade in one of the worst economic slumps anywhere in the world. What have been the financial impacts of this on universities and on the academic profession? Well, if you add the effect that we were discussing before of you know moving resources from traditional universities to these new universities, and then you take into account the economic decline, the hyperinflation, above all. What you have is selling I have a hard time finding words to describe 
how hard this impact is. We are talking about the professors, the senior professors earning one dollar, you know, in salaries and things like that. You are talking about emeritus retired professors starving, literally, because they don't find in their pensions are not enough to feed them, things like that. And of course, that's the brain drain. The talent has basically emigrated. By last count, more than half of the scientific researchers in Venezuela now live abroad, just to give you an idea. So there has been a massive loss of academic capacity, and you hear stories. It's very hard, by the way, to get systematic information because no public agency publishes statistics or factual information about this, but you hear stories about whole departments closing down or whole degrees disappearing and things like that in public universities because there's just no students, no professors, no resources at all. And it sounds to me a lot like what the universities were like in the Soviet Union in the early 1990s during that collapse. Our professors not being paid for months and, as you said, you know, maybe making a salary of 10 or $20 a month. What else do they do to make ends meet? Well, I think collapse, by the way, is a good word for the system. I don't know. I think that most of whomever can leave has left. And most of the people that remain are, you know, because they have probably so many connections nationally that can manage to get some international support or grants or things like that. Or maybe some of them stop being full-time professors and dedicate some time to private consulting, things like that. But most of the traditional idea of the academic dedicated to the full-time instructional research is basically almost disappeared. And apart from the financial challenges universities face, what kind of policy changes have there been in public universities? What have Chavez and Maduro tried to do with universities in terms of controlling things there or shifting priorities? What's been the focus of policy change in public universities? Well, connecting to what I was saying before, I think that the universities remain to be perceived by the government in the opposition as political actors, hostile political actors. And what we have seen is a series of repeated attempts by the government to take over the governance of institutions. In Venezuela, there are elections every five years or four years for the, the university president, the rector, and the main authorities. And those that vote are the students and the professors, mostly. So it's an internal, and the government cannot appoint directly the rector. That's, there are exceptions, but the, most of the cases are like that. And there has been a political struggle to make sure that whoever is elected next uh, will be sympathetic to the government. But those attempts, for the most part, have failed. So the internal resistance of universities to the government has been very strong. And most universities remain in the column of opposition for the government. So I would say there is no policy other than control them, but attempts to control them have so far mostly failed. That's the status. And so I know that students have been in the forefront of political protests in Venezuela over the past few years. And certainly in 2017, a number of them were killed in demonstrations as a result of political violence. Is it an organized student movement? So is there a national student movement that, that 
puts up this kind of resistance or is it more, I guess, sort of local and ad hoc opposition? I'd say that the students have, they have their organizations, the student centers and student federations, but for the most part, they have coalesced. They have become really organic uh, and coordinated on some specific instances, like the constitutional referendum or things like that, or the protests of, of 2017. You may know that right now, the situation in Venezuela, politically speaking, is sort of hard to define. It says that there is a feeling that the government has consolidated, the, the Maduro is consolidated. There's still some opposition out there, but they are not particularly influential right now. So I think the students are in that context. So you cannot see, as of today, a clear activism that has a clear direction. Now, I am sure that if the situation evolves in a more well-defined contest for power again, as it has done periodically over time, the students would immediately get their act together and be a part of it. So far, we've been talking about public universities, but what about private ones? Have they been able to maintain independence? Have they been able to maintain quality by charging tuition fees? Yes, there has been also tension, politically speaking, between the private universities and the government. You know, it's, it hasn't been an easy relationship, let's say, but the private universities have been able to count on the support of the umbrella provided by, you know, sometimes the church, in the case of the Catholic universities, sometimes the business sector or what remains of it in Venezuela, in the case of other universities. So they have been functioning in some sort of bubble of autonomy that has protected them with some difficulties. And of course, the economic situation, generally speaking, has affected them too. But I would say that they are the best functioning universities in Minnesota right now. You can recognize them as normal institutions doing interesting things. That They have all also made an effort to, to continue being inclusive of low-income students. They have developed programs for community development with the surrounding populations. So they are trying their best to adjust to the situation in the country and to gain legitimacy and maintain quality. And I'll say with difficulties, they have been achieving it. Looking forward, I mean, eventually the Maduro government's going to fall somehow, right? I mean, all governments end at a certain point. How will Venezuela begin to rebuild its higher education system when that happens? What are the building blocks for future improvement? And should the country go back to the status quo ante, or are there new models it could or should adopt? Well, Alex, that's a very important question. I think that the level of destruction is such that there is the agenda of rebuilding uh, business as usual is not realistic. And on the contrary, this is my opinion, I'm sure there will be people with different takes on it, but my impression is that you have to take the level of disarray and, and the, the sort of a blank slate that has been created in higher education in Venezuela as an opportunity. So I think that the system should be rebuilt. Is vital for the future of the country, but it should rebuild or probably along different lines. Juan Carlos Navarro, thank you very much for joining us on the show. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for this opportunity, and I hope that's been minimally interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when we will be talking about the new University Autonomy in Europe scorecard with one of the report's authors, Enora Prevost. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.